0: Good evening, tonight I'll be reading part 1, chapter 17, and part 2, chapter 1 of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in. For a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 17 The Thunder Child Had the Martians aimed only at destruction, they might on Monday have annihilated the entire population of London as it spread itself slowly through the home counties. Not only along the road through Barnet, but also through Edgware and Waltham Abbey, and along the roads eastward to Southend and Shuburyness, and south of the Thames to Deal and Broadstair, poured the same frantic route, If one could have hung that June morning in a balloon in the blazing blue above London, every northward and eastward road running out of the tangled maze of streets would have seemed stippled black with the steaming fugitives, each dot a human agony of terror and physical distress. I have set forth at length in the last chapter my brother's account of the road through Chipping Barnet, in order that my readers may realize how that swarming of black dots appeared to one of those concerned. Never before in the history of the world had such a mass of human beings moved and suffered together. The legendary host of Goths and Huns, the hugest armies Asia has ever seen, would have been but a drop in that current. And this was no disciplined march, it was a stampede. A stampede gigantic and terrible, without order and without a goal. Six million people Unarmed and unprovisioned, driving headlong, it was the beginning of the route of civilization, of the massacre of mankind. Directly below him, the balloonist would have seen the network of streets far and wide, houses, churches, squares, crescents, gardens, already derelict, spread out like a huge map, and in the southward blotted. Over Ealing, Richmond, Wimbledon, it would have seemed as if some monstrous pen had flung ink upon the chart. Steadily, incessantly, each black splash grew and spread, Shooting out ramifications this way and that, now banking itself against rising ground, now pouring swiftly over a crescent into a new-found valley, exactly as a gout of ink would spread itself upon blotting paper. And beyond, over the blue hills that rise southward of the river, The glittering Martians went to and fro, calmly and methodically spreading their poison cloud over this patch of country, and then over that, laying it again with their steam jets when it had served its purpose, and taking possession of the conquered country. They do not seem to have aimed at extermination, so much as at complete demoralization and the destruction of any opposition. They exploded any stores of powder they came upon, cut every telegraph, and wrecked the railways here and there. They were hamstringing mankind. They seemed in no hurry to extend the field of their operations, and did not come beyond the central part of London all that day. It is possible that a very considerable number of people in London stuck to their houses through Monday morning. Certain it is that many died at home suffocated by the black smoke. Until about midday, the pool of London was an astonishing scene. Steamboats and shipping of all sorts lay there, tempted by the enormous sums of money offered by fugitives. And it is said that many who swam out to these vessels were thrust off with boat hooks and drowned. About one o'clock in the afternoon... The thinning remnant of a cloud of black vapour appeared between the arches of Blackfriars Bridge. At that the pool became a scene of mad confusion, fighting and collision, and for some time a multitude of boats and barges jammed in the northern arch of the Tower Bridge, and the sailors and lightermen had to fight savagely against the people who swarmed upon them from the riverfront. People were actually clambering down the piers of the bridge from above, when, an hour later, a Martian appeared beyond the clock tower and waded down the river. Nothing but wreckage floated above Limehouse, Of the falling of the fifth cylinder I have presently to tell. The sixth star fell at Wimbledon. My brother, keeping watch beside the woman in the chassis in a meadow, saw the green flash of it far beyond the hills. On Tuesday, the little party still set upon getting across the sea, made its way through the swarming country towards Colchester. The news that the Martians were now in possession of the whole of London was confirmed. They had been seen at Highgate, and even, it was said, at Neesden, But they did not come into my brother's view until the morrow. That day the scattered multitudes began to realize the urgent need of provisions. As they grew hungry, the rights of property ceased to be regarded. Farmers were out to defend their cattle sheds, granaries, and ripening root crops with arms in their hands. A number of people now, like my little brother at their faces eastward, and there were some desperate souls even going back towards London to get food. These were chiefly people from the northern suburbs, whose knowledge of the black smoke came by hearsay. He heard that about half the members of the government had gathered at Birmingham, and that enormous quantities of high explosives were being prepared to be used in automatic mines across the Midland countries. He was also told that the Midland Railway Company had replaced the desertion of the first day's panic, had resumed traffic, and was running northward trains from St. Albans to relieve the congestion of the home counties there was also a placard in chipping hunger announcing that large stores of flour were available in the northern towns and that within 24 hours bread would be distributed among the starving people in the neighborhood but this intelligence did not deter him from the plan of escape he had formed, and the three pressed eastward all day, and heard no more of the bread distribution than this promise, nor, as a matter of fact, did anyone else hear more of it. That night fell the seventh star, falling upon Primrose Hill. It fell while Miss Elphinstone was watching, for she took that duty alternately with my brother. She saw it. On Wednesday, the three refugees, they had passed the night in a field of unripe wheat, reached Chelmsford, and there a body of the inhabitants, calling itself the Committee of Public Supply, seized the pony as provisions and would give nothing in exchange for it but the promise of a share in it the next day. Here there were rumours of Martians in Epping, and news of the destruction of Waltham Abbey powder mills in a vain attempt to blow up one of the invaders. People were watching for Martians here from the church towers. My brother... Very luckily for him, as it chanced, preferred to push on at once to the coast rather than wait for food, although all three of them were very hungry. By midday they passed through Tillingham, which, strangely enough, seemed to be quite silent and deserted, save for a few furtive plunderers hunting for food. Near Tillingham they suddenly came in sight of the sea, and the most amazing crowd of shipping of all sorts that is possible to imagine. For after the sailors could no longer come up the Thames, they came on to the Essex coast, to Harwich and Walton and Clacton, and afterwards to Falmouth and Shoebury to bring off the people. They lay in a huge sickle shaped curve that vanished into the mist at last towards the naze. Close in shore was a multitude of fishing smacks English, Scotch, French, Dutch, and Swedish, steam launches from the Thames, yachts, electric boats, and beyond were ships of large burden. A multitude of filthy colliers, trim merchantmen, cattle ships, passenger boats, petroleum tanks, ocean tramps, an old white transport even, neat white and grey liners from Southampton and Hamburg, and along the blue coast, across the black water, my brother could make out dimly, a dense swarm of boats, chafering with the people on the beach. A swarm which also extended up the black water, almost to molden. About a couple of miles out, lay an ironclad, very low in the water, almost, to my brother's perception, like a waterlogged ship. This was the ram, Thunderchild, it was the only warship in sight, but far away to the right, over the smooth surface of the sea, for that day there was a dead calm, lay a serpent of black smoke to mark the next dying of the channel fleet, which hovered in an extended line, steam up and ready for action, across the Thames estuary, during the course of the Martian conquest, vigilant and yet powerless to prevent it. At the sight of the sea, Mrs. Elphinstone, in spite of the assurances of her sister-in-law, gave way to panic. She had never been out of England before. She would rather die than trust herself friendless in a foreign country, and so forth. She seemed, poor woman, to imagine that the French and the Martians might prove very similar. She had been growing increasingly hysterical, fearful, and depressed during the two days' journey. Her great idea was to return to Stanmore. Things had always been well and safe at Stanmore. They would find George at Stanmore. It was with great difficulty they could get her down to the beach, where presently my brother succeeded in attracting the attention of some men on a paddle steamer from the Thames. They sent a boat and drove a bargain for thirty-six pounds for the three. The steamer was going, these men said, to Ostend. It was about two o'clock when my brother having paid their fares at the gangway, found himself safely aboard the steamboat with his charges. There was food aboard, albeit at exorbitant prices, and the three of them contrived to eat a meal on one of the seats forward. There were already a couple of scores of passengers aboard, some of whom had expended their last money in securing a passage, but the captain lay off the blackwater until five in the afternoon, picking up passengers until the seated deck were even dangerously crowded. He would probably have remained longer had it not been for the sound of guns that began about that hour in the south. As if in answer, the ironclad seaward fired a small gun and hoisted a string of flags. A jet of smoke sprang out of her funnels. Some of the passengers were of opinion that this firing came from Shubrinus until it was noticed that it was growing louder. At the same time, far away in the southeast, the masts and upworkers of three ironclads rose one after the other out of the sea, beneath clouds of black smoke. But my brother's attention speedily reverted to the distant firing in the south. He fancied he saw a column of smoke rising out of the distant grey haze. The little steamer was already flapping her way eastward of the big crescent of shipping, and the low Essex coast was growing blue and hazy when a Martian appeared, small and faint in the remote distance, advancing along the muddy coast from the direction of foulness. At that the captain on the bridge swore at the top of his voice, with fear and anger at his own delay, and the paddle seemed inaffected with his terror. Every soul aboard stood at the bulkwood or on the seats of the steamer and stared at that distant shape, higher than the trees or church towers inland, and advancing with a leisurely parody of a human stride. It was the first Martian my brother had seen, and he stood, more amazed than terrified, watching this titan advancing deliberately towards the shipping, wading farther and farther into the water as the coast fell away. Then, far away beyond the crouch, came another, striding over some stunted trees and then yet another, still farther off, wading deeply through a shining mudflat that seemed to hang halfway up between sea and sky. They were all stalking seaward, as if to intercept the escape of the multitudinous vessels that were crowded between foulness and the Nays. In spite of the throbbing exertions of the engines of the little paddle boat and the pouring foam that her wheels flung behind her, she receded with terrifying slowness from the ominous advance. Glancing northwestward, my brother saw the large crescent of shipping already writhing with the approaching terror one ship passing behind another, another coming round from broadside to end on, steamships whistling and giving off volumes of steam, sails being let out, launches rushing hither and thither. He was so fascinated by this and by the creeping danger away to the left, that he had no eyes for anything seaward and then a swift movement of the steamboat she had suddenly come round to avoid being run down flung him headlong from the seat upon which he was standing there was a shouting all about him a trampling of feet and a cheer that seemed to be answered faintly The steamboat lurched and rolled him over upon his hands. He sprang to his feet and saw to starboard, and not a hundred yards from their heeling, pitching boat, a vast iron bulk like the blade of a plow, tearing through the water, tossing it on either side in huge waves of foam that leapt towards the steamer, "'flinging her paddles helplessly in the air "'and then sucking her deck down almost to the waterline. "'A douche of spray blinded my brother for a moment. "'When his eyes were clear again, "'he saw the monster had passed and was rushing landward. "'Big iron upper works rose out of this headlong structure.' and from that, twin funnels projected and spat a smoking blast shot with fire. It was the torpedo ram, Thunderchild, steaming headlong, coming to the rescue of the threatened ship. Keeping his footing on the heaving deck by clutching the bulkwards, my brother looked past this charging Levantine at the Martians again and he saw the three of them now close together and standing so far out to sea that their tripod supports were almost entirely submerged. Thus sunken and seen in remote perspective they appeared far less formidable than the huge iron bulk in whose wake the steamer was pitching so helplessly. It would seem that they were regarding this new antagonist with astonishment. To their intelligence, it may be, the giant was even such another as themselves. The thunder child fired no gun, but simply drove full speed towards them. It was probably her not firing that enabled her to get so near the enemy as she did. They did not know what to make of her. One shell, and they would have sent her to the bottom forthwith with the heat ray. She was steaming at such a pace that in a minute she seemed halfway between the steamboat and the Martians. A diminishing black bulk against the receding horizontal expanse of the Essex coast. Suddenly, the foremost Martian lowered his tube and discharged a canister of the black gas at the ironclad. It hit her larboard side and glanced off in an inky jet that rolled away to seaward an unfolding torrent of black smoke, from which the ironclad drove clear. To the watchers from the steamer, low in the water and with the sun in their eyes, it seemed as though she were already among the Martians. They saw the gaunt figures separating and rising out of the water as they retreated shoreward, and one of them, raised the camera-like generator of the heat ray. He held it pointing obliquely downward, and a bank of steam sprang from the water at its touch. It must have driven through the iron of the ship's side like a white-hot iron rod through paper. A flicker of flame went up through the rising steam, and then the Martian reeled and staggered. In another moment he was cut down, and a great body of water and steam shot into the air. The guns of the thunder Child sounded through the reek, going off one after the other, and one shot splashed the water high close by the steamer, ricocheted towards the other flying ships to the north, and smashed a smack to matchwood. But no one heeded that very much. At the sight of the Martian's collapse, the captain on the bridge yelled inarticulately, and all the crowding passengers on the steamers stern shouted together. And then they yelled again, for surging out beyond the white tumult drove something long and black the flames streaming from its middle parts its ventilator and funnels spouting fire she was still alive the steering gear it seems within intact and her engines working she headed straight for a second Martian and was within a hundred yards of him when the heat ray came to bear. Then, with a violent thud, a blinding flash, her decks, her funnels, leaped upwards. The Martian staggered with the violence of her explosion, and in another moment the flaming wreckage, still driving forward with the impetus of its pace, had struck him and crumpled him up like a thing of cardboard. My brother shouted involuntarily. A boiling tumult of steam hid everything again. Two, yelled the captain. Everyone was shouting. The whole steamer from end to end ran with frantic cheering that was taken up first by one, and then by all in the crowding multitudes of ships and boats that was driving out to sea. The steam hung upon the water for many minutes, hiding the third Martian and the coast altogether, and all this time the boat was paddling steadily out to sea and away from the fight, and when at last the confusion cleared the drifting bank of black vapour intervened, and nothing of the thunder child could be made out, nor could the third Martian be seen. But the ironclads to seaward were now quite close, and standing in towards shore, past the steamboat. The little vessel continued to beat its way seaward, and the ironclad receded slowly towards the coast, which was hidden still by a marbled bank of vapour. Part steam, part black gas, eddying and combining in the strangest way. The fleet of refugees was scattering to the northeast. Several smacks were sailing between the ironclads, and the steamboat. After a time, and before they reached the sinking cloud bank, the warships turned northward, and then abruptly went about and passed into the thickening haze of the evening southward. The coast grew faint, and at last indistinguishable amid the low banks of clouds that were gathering about the sinking sun. Then, suddenly, out of the golden haze of the sunset came the vibration of guns and a form of black shadows moving. Everyone struggled to the rail of the steamer and peered into the blinding furnace of the west. But nothing was to be distinguished clearly. A mass of smoke rose slanting and barred The face of the sun. The steamboat throbbed on its way through an interminable suspense. The sun sank into grey clouds. The sky flushed and darkened. The evening star trembled into sight. It was deep twilight when the captain cried out and pointed. My brother strained his eyes. Something rushed up into the sky out of the greyness, rushed slantingly upward and very swiftly into the luminous clearness above the clouds in the western sky. Something flat and broad and very large that swept round in a vast curve grew smaller, sank slowly, and vanished again into the grey mystery of the night, and as it flew, it rained down darkness upon the land. Book Two The Earth Under the Martians Chapter One Underfoot In the first book I have wandered so much from my own adventures to tell of the experiences of my brother that all through the last two chapters I and the curate have been lurking in the empty house at the Haliford whither we fled to escape the black smoke. There I will resume. We stopped there all Sunday night and all the next day, the day of panic, in a little island of daylight, cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. We could do nothing but wait in aching inactivity during those two weary days. My mind was occupied by anxiety for my wife. I figured her at Leatherhead. "'terrified, in danger, mourning me already as a dead man. "'I paced the rooms and cried aloud when I thought of how I was cut off from her, "'of all that might happen to her in my absence. "'My cousin, I knew, was brave enough for an emergency, "'but he was not the sort of man to realise danger quickly.' to rise promptly. What was needed now was not bravery, but circumspection. My only consolation was to believe that the Martians were moving Londonward and away from her. Such vague anxieties keep the mind sensitive and painful. I grew very weary and irritable with the curate's perpetual ejaculations. I tired of the sight of his selfish despair. After some ineffectual remonstrance, I kept away from him, staying in a room, evidently a children's schoolroom, containing globes, forms, and copybooks. When he followed me thither... I went to a box room at the top of the house and, in order to be alone with my aching miseries, locked myself in. We were hopelessly hemmed in by the black smoke all that day and all the morning next. There were signs of people in the next house on Sunday evening, a face at a window and moving lights, and later the slamming of a door but I do not know who these people were nor what became of them we saw nothing of them next day the black smoke drifted slowly riverward all through Monday morning creeping nearer and nearer to us driving at last along the roadway outside the house that hid us a Martian came across the fields about midday, laying the stuff with a jet of superheated steam that hissed against the walls, smashed all the windows it touched, and scolded the curate's hands as he fled out of the front room. When at last we crept across the sodden rooms and looked out again, The country northward was as though a black snowstorm had passed over it. Looking towards the river, we were astonished to see an unaccountable redness mingling with the black of the scorched meadows. For a time, we did not see how this change affected our position, save that we were relieved of our fear of the black smoke. But later, I perceived that we were no longer hemmed in, that now we might get away. So soon as I realized that, the way of escape was open. My dream of action returned, but the curate was lethargic, unreasonable. We are safe here, he repeated, safe here. I resolved to leave him. Would that I had. Wiser now for the artilleryman's teaching, I sought out food and drink. I had found oil and rags for my burns, and I also took a hat and a flannel shirt that I found in one of the bedrooms. When it was clear to him that I meant to go alone, I had reconciled myself to going alone. He suddenly roused himself to come, and all being quiet throughout the afternoon, we started about five o'clock, as I should judge, along the blackened road to Sunbury. In Sunbury, and at intervals along the road, were dead bodies lying in contorted attitudes, horses as well as men, overturned carts and luggage, all covered thickly with black dust. That pall of cindery powder made me think of what I had read of the destruction of Pompeii. We got to Hampton Court without misadventure, our minds full of strange and unfamiliar appearances, and at Hampton Court... Our eyes were relieved to find a patch of green that had escaped the suffocating drift. We went through Bushy Park, with its deer going to and fro under the chestnuts, and some men and women hurrying in the distance towards Hampton, and so we came to Twickenham. These were the first people we saw. Away across the road... The wood beyond Ham and Petersham was still afire. Twickenham was uninjured by either heat ray or black smoke, and there were more people about here, though none could give us news. For the most part they were like ourselves, taking advantage of a lull to shift their quarters. I have an impression that many of these houses here were still occupied by scared inhabitants, too frightened even for flight. Here, too, the evidence of a hasty route was abundant along the road. I remember most vividly three smashed bicycles in a heap, pounded into the road by the wheels of a subsequent cart. We crossed Richmond Bridge about half past eight, We hurried across the exposed bridge, of course, but I noticed floating down the stream a number of red masses, some many feet across. I did not know what these were, there was no time for scrutiny, and I put a more horrible interpretation on them than they deserved. Here again on the Surrey side were black Dust that had once been smoke and dead bodies, a heap near the approach to the station. But we had no glimpse of the Martians until we were some way towards Barnes. We saw in the blackened distance a group of three people running down a side street towards the river, but otherwise it seemed deserted. The hill Richmond town was burning briskly. Outside the town of Richmond, there was no trace of the black smoke. Then, suddenly, as we approached Kew, came a number of people running, and the upper works of a Martian fighting machine loomed in sight over the housetops, not a hundred yards away from us. We stood aghast at our danger, and had the Martians looked down, we must immediately have perished. We were so terrified that we dared not go on, but turned aside and hid in a shed in a garden. There the curate crouched, weeping silently and refusing to stir again. But my fixed idea of reaching Leatherhead would not let me rest, and in the twilight I ventured out again. I went through a shrubbery and along a passage beside a big house standing in its own grounds, and so emerged upon the road towards Kew. The curate I left in the shed, but he came hurrying after me. The second start was the most foolhardy thing I ever did, for it was manifest the Martians were about us. No sooner had the curate overtaken me than we saw either the fighting machine we had seen before, or another, far away across the meadows, in the direction of Kew Lodge. Four or five little black figures... Hurried before it to cross the green grey of the field, and in a moment it was evident this Martian pursued them. In three strides he was among them, and they ran radiating from his feet in all directions. He used no heat ray to destroy them, but picked them up one by one. Apparently, he tossed them into the great metallic container which projected behind him, much as a workman's basket hangs over his shoulder. It was the first time I realized that the Martians might have any other purpose than destruction with defeated humanity. We stood for a moment petrified, then turned and fled through a gate behind us into a walled garden, fell into, rather than found, a fortunate ditch, and lay there, scarce daring to whisper to each other until the stars were out. I suppose it was nearly eleven o'clock before we gathered courage to start again, no longer venturing into the road but sneaking along the hedgerows and through plantations and watching keenly through the darkness, he on the right and I on the left for the Martians, who seemed to be all about us. In one place we blundered upon a scorched and blackened area, now cooling and ashen, and a number of scattered dead bodies of men. Burned horribly about the heads and trunks, but with their legs and boots mostly intact, and of dead horses, fifty feet perhaps, behind a line of four ripped guns and smashed gun carriages. Sheen, it seemed, had escaped destruction, but the place was silent and deserted, Here we happened on no dead, though the night was too dark for us to see into the side roads of the place. In Sheen, my companion suddenly complained of faintness and thirst, and we decided to try one of the houses. The first house we entered, after a little difficulty with the window, was a small semi-detached villa and I found nothing edible left in the place but some mouldy cheese. There was, however, water to drink, and I took a hatchet which promised to be useful in our next housebreaking. We then crossed to a place where the road turns towards Mort Lake. Here there stood a white house within a walled garden, and in the pantry of this domicile... We found a store of food, two loaves of bread in a pan, an uncooked steak, and the half of a ham. I give this catalogue so precisely because, as it happened, we were destined to subsist upon this store for the next fortnight. Bottled beer stood under a shelf, and there were two bags of haricot beans. "'and some limp lettuce. "'This pantry opened into a kind of wash-up kitchen, "'and in this was firewood. "'There was also a cupboard, "'in which we found nearly a dozen of burgundy, "'tinned soups and salmon, "'and two tins of biscuits. "'We sat in the adjacent kitchen in the dark, "'for we dared not strike a light.' and ate bread and ham, and drank beer out of the same bottle. The curate, who was still timorous and restless, was now, oddly enough, for pushing on, and I was urging him to keep up his strength by eating when the thing happened that was to imprison us. It can't be midnight yet, I said, And then came a blinding glare of vivid green light. Everything in the kitchen leaped out, clearly visible in green and black, and vanished again. And then followed such a concussion as I never heard before or since. So close on the heels of this as to seem instantaneous came a thud behind me. A clash of glass, a crash and rattle of falling masonry all about us, and the plaster of the ceiling came down upon us, smashing into a multitude of fragments upon our heads. I was knocked headlong across the floor against the oven handle and stunned. I was insensible for a long time, The curate told me, and when I came to, we were in darkness again, and he, with a face wet, as I found afterwards, with blood from a cut forehead, was dabbing water over me. For some time I could not recollect what had happened, then things came to me slowly, a bruise on my temple asserted itself. Are you better? asked the curate in a whisper. At last I answered him. I sat up. Don't move, he said. The floor is covered with smashed crockery from the dresser. You can't possibly move without making a noise, and I fancy they are outside. We both sat quite silent so that we could scarcely hear each other breathing. Everything seemed deadly still, but once something near us, some plaster or broken brickwork, slid down with a rumbling sound. Outside and very near was an intermittent metallic rattle. That, said the curate, when presently it happened again. Yes, I said but what is it? A Martian, said the curate. I listened again. It was not like the heat ray, I said, and for a time I was inclined to think one of the great fighting machines had stumbled against the house, as I had seen one stumble against the tower of Shepperton Church. Our situation was so strange and incomprehensible that for three or four hours, until the dawn came, we scarcely moved. And then the light filtered in, not through the window, which remained black, but through a triangular aperture between a beam and a heap of broken bricks in the wall behind us. The interior of the kitchen we now saw greyly for the first time. The window had been burst by a mass of garden mould, which flowed over the table upon which we had been sitting and lay about our feet. Outside, the soil was banked high against the house. At the top of the window frame, we could see an uprooted drain pipe. The floor was littered with smashed hardware, the end of the kitchen towards the house was broken into, and since the daylight shone in there, it was evident the greater part of the house had collapsed. Contrasting vividly with this ruin was the neat dresser, stained in the fashion, pale green and with a number of copper and tin vessels below it, the wallpaper imitating blue and white tiles, and a couple of coloured supplements fluttering from the walls above the kitchen range. As the dawn grew clearer, we saw through the gap in the wall the body of a Martian, standing sentinel, I suppose, over the still glowing cylinder. At the sight of that, we crawled as circumspectly as possible out of the twilight of the kitchen into the darkness of the scullery. Abruptly, the right interpretation dawned upon my mind. The fifth cylinder, I whispered. The fifth shot from Mars has struck this house and buried us under the ruins. For a time the curate was silent, and then he whispered, God have mercy upon us. I heard him presently whimper to himself, Save for that sound, we lay quite still in the scullery. I, for my part, scarce dared breathe, and sat with my eyes fixed on the faint light of the kitchen door. I could just see the curate's face, a dim oval shape, and his collar and cuffs. Outside there began a metallic hammering, then a violent hooting, and then again, after a quiet interval, a hissing like the hissing of an engine, These noises, for the most part problematical, continued intermittently and seemed as if anything to increase in number as time wore on. Presently a measured thudding and a vibration that made everything about us quiver and the vessels in the pantry ring and shift began and continued. Once the light was eclipsed, and the ghostly kitchen doorway became absolutely dark. For many hours we must have crouched there, silent and shivering, until our tired attention failed. At last I found myself awake and very hungry. I am inclined to believe we must have spent the greater portion of the day before that awakening my hunger was at a stride so insistent that it moved me to action i told the curate i was going to seek food and felt my way towards the pantry he made me no answer but so soon as i began eating the faint noise i made stirred him up and i heard him crawling after me